So in Leviticus 16, we come to this chapter called the Day of Atonement. It's a special day in Israel in which one guy on this one day got to go into this one place once a year. This one place was what was called the Holy of Holies. It's a room, 15 cubic feet, within a tent, which is in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of Israel's camp. This room is where there's an ark called the Ark of the Covenant. And on it is a mercy seat with two cherubim growing out from each end, carved solid gold, and facing each other. And it is here in this mercy seat that God says, I will dwell among the people. God, heaven, coming to earth, human realm, and connecting there. But humans cannot just romp on in. Having this kind of a connection and relationship with God takes time. Because we carry a lot of baggage And a lot of hindrances and a lot of shame and a lot of sin. And so Leviticus gives us the details on how humankind can approach the very essence and presence of God. So atonement. I know this is going to sound totally like, do we even, I mean, we might throw this word around, but it's kind of a scary word, atonement. Define it quick. You know, it's like, what? So let's make this simple. Atonement is at one meant. The English is very nice because they took the meaning of the Hebrew word and just put it into nice English letters for us. To have atonement is to have at one meant. And the at one meant is between God and humans, between heaven and earth. There is this oneness, this connection that's happening. Now, why do we need atonement? Why do we need to be brought? together as one because of the tear in life. Adam and Eve had a place where they lived with God in harmony and unity. They walked with him in the cool of the day. The garden was great because heaven and earth were one. God and humans were one. Adam and Eve make a poor choice and heaven and earth tear apart Humans rend the relationship with God and go their own way. And this rending, this tearing, this great divorce, if you will, has left scars and has left pains and wounds on the human soul. And so we live and go around with this pain, with this severance, with this tear, with this feeling of I'm not at one with something, but I don't know what it is. And the way this pain festers in the human life is generally in either fear, in anger, or in shame. Fear, anger, and shame come in, and they drive us to do things with our pain. They remind us that we're missing something. And so we can choose to numb our pain with substance or entertainment or hedonism, all kinds of things that make us feel good, we can numb it. Or we can hurt others with our pain. There's a saying that hurt people hurt people. 
because of something that's wrong with us that we've not quite mastered, don't know the story behind, we can tend to hurt people with our fear, with our anger, with our shame. So we numb it, we hurt others, or we hide from it. We just ignore it. And we choose to bury ourselves in work or in an identity we've made for ourselves or in a relationship we bury ourselves in our possessions because we're trying to hide. Now, Adam and Eve did a little bit of this hiding and in a sense hurting one another in that when God comes in the garden right after they make their mistake and they begin to move away from God, he comes to immediately say, I want at one mint with you. What does he do? It says in Genesis 3, as God's walking through the cool of the day, he asks, because he suddenly realizes Adam and Eve are gone. Adam, where are you? Where are you is an invitation for at one mint. Where are you says there has been a rupture, a severance, a tear, a split. I feel it. I smell your pain. Where are you? Let's heal this. And what do they do instead? They hide. They cover themselves with fig leaves. And then they, when they finally, oh, okay, we're found out. Let's come forward. The woman did it, Adam says. God asks the woman, is this true? And she says, the serpent. And on and on the game could go. There's this blaming. There's this, in a sense, scapegoating. There's this, yep, wrong has been done. A severance and a tear has happened. So we're going to point the finger there. And this still happens as we feel our pain, our lack of oneness with God. We can hurt other people. We can put our problems onto them. Because my dad was a jerk to me. I'm a jerk to everybody around me. When we find people who are not very nice, often there's a story like that. Well, this happened to me, or this person did this to me. So what are you doing? You're taking the pain you've received, and you are using the people around you as your scapegoat. You're putting it onto them. In Leviticus 16, this day of atonement, where God gives Israel this invitation to become one with him again, like Adam and Eve... Though this time, the Day of Atonement is this, is this day of very detailed and complex order of events, and it gives Israel the chance to say what Adam did not say. It gives Israel the chance to say, here I am. Oh, my people, where are you? And on the Day of Atonement, they step forward and say, here we are. Make us one with you. It's a beautiful day that they celebrate. So let's look at it. Leviticus 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, do you remember that? Um, Not last week, but two weeks ago when we were in the cedar building. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, are killed on the day that the tabernacle is inaugurated, they go a step too far. They try to rush into this relationship with God and they go, well, past this curtain into the Holy of Holies where they should not go and they die. Well, now, speaking of them, 
the two humans who, well, remember, God was living in a garden with humans, but two humans messed that up. God is living in a tabernacle with humans, but two humans messed that up. So let's do this all over again. Let's give us the chance to step forward and say, God, here we are. Make us one because we've messed up yet again. And Nadab and Abayu, Adam and Eve, you and I are not hindrances enough. We cannot stop God from continually and relentlessly pursuing and chasing after us. He is the God of saying another obstacle, bring it on. It's another chance for me to show how deep my love is. We cannot out mess up his ability to rescue us. And so yeah, Nadab and Abai repeat the same old story, but guess what? Because of them, I'm giving you a day of atonement. So verse two, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So Aaron, make sure you tell the priest, you cannot just barge on in. God is too real of a love and relationship for us just to move on in and use how we want. There's a process for drawing close and there are some steps because real relationships require intimacy, which is a journey. Intimacy doesn't just happen because you want it. There's steps of getting to know someone and living in relationship. So verse three, but in this way, Aaron shall come. So there's one way you can come into the holy place. So there's going to be seven steps. I'm going to walk you through them to simplify. This day could be very confusing. We're going to understand it in seven steps. Step number one, Aaron, wear the appropriate clothing. So verse, uh, verse three In this way, Aaron shall come with a bull from the herd of the sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. We'll get to that in a minute. He doesn't do anything with them yet. But in verse four, he shall put on holy linen and shall have the linen undergarment on it. So even the underwear is important. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. This day starts right when he gets up and washes and puts on the appropriate underwear and the appropriate clothing. And this is not his everyday uniform. These garments are special for this day. So, verse 6, the second step. He puts on the right clothes. Now he takes a bowl. This bowl is for Aaron to offer for himself. So Aaron needs to be right with God before he can lead everybody else in Israel. So in verse six, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then verse seven, he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And here's the third step. So he's put on the right clothes. He has a bull to make an offering for himself and his family. Now the third step, he's going to cast lots for these two goats. In other words, it's kind of like rolling the dice. You're going to see which goat does what, because these two goats are going to have two rolls. So Aaron, verse eight, shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot 
for Azazel. For what? Now, if you're reading the New King James, I reckon it says uh, scapegoat. Thank you. Azazel is actually the Hebrew word for that scapegoat. We don't know exactly what it means. People's best guess is that it means scapegoat. Where is Azazel? Is it a place? Is it, are you to take the goat to Azazel, like to Barstow? Or are you to take him to a person? Is Azazel maybe a demon? Some people propose that it's a goat demon. So you take the goat to this little thing and say, here's the goat. Um, we don't really know. But the idea is that the goat takes something somewhere for the people. It's their sins, as we'll see in a minute. But so the lots are cast. So these two goats are there and Aaron throws the dice and we say, okay, the dice say this goat to God and this goat to Azazel. Step four, verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. So he already killed the bull we saw in the second step, but now he's going to use the bull in the appropriate way. Um, so the, the bull has been put on the altar. It's been burning a bit. The blood has been drained. Now he applies the blood appropriately in step four. So verse 11, we see, he shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. And this is what he shall do. He shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals from the fire from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Okay. So as Moses pulls back the veil, the big curtain that nobody could go behind and enters into the very throne of God, he must do so with a censer, which is burning incense and the smoke from which will then kind of create a cloud so that Moses has some barrier between him and the divine and does not die. And must smell really good too. But he also goes in with a bull with the blood of the bull that was killed for him. And he takes that blood and it says he sprinkles it seven times on that ark, which is the throne of God. And he sprinkles it seven times on the east side. Now the tabernacle opened up to the east. There's two reasons for that. One, the sun rises in the east. It's a sign of life. God brings us toward life. But the other reason is that Remember when Adam and Eve were thrown out of Eden, it says that they went east of Eden. East is the direction we left the presence of God originally. Aaron, the priest, goes westward. The tabernacle's facing east, so he's going westward. He's retracing the steps humanity walked out of Eden with. And he's going back into the presence of God. And there he's now sprinkling seven times the blood in front of the mercy seat. Verse 15 is step five. So now we look at goat one, the one that goes to God. So then Aaron shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So exact same process. He's doing this again with now Israel's goat. So he had a sin offering with the bull. Now there's a sin offering for Israel with the goat. He's doing the same thing. Um, 
But this is interesting. As you continue verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Wait, what? The holy place needs atonement. What? It needs at one with God? Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So because Israel has sinned, the tabernacle, the house of God needs atonement. So, so, so there's this mirror image in which when the people do something foolish, the tabernacle wears the mark of it, which tells us that sin is never private. That the sinner's sin stains more than himself. And it always affects something else. 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Aaron, like Jesus, does it alone. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. So the, the tent needs atonement. The altar needs atonement. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull. So from his sacrifice and some of the blood from the goat Israel's sacrifice and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So he's done this in the very throne of God on the mercy seat. Now he goes out to the outer courts where all the people are watching and he puts well, it's Leviticus and it's graphic, but he smears the blood upon the four corners of the altar would have horns that come up and he would smear the blood on those. And then he would walk to it and sprinkle seven times on that as well, because everything is needing cleansing and reunification with God because the people have made choices to walk away. Step six, verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Why the live goat? Because this goat doesn't die. This goat stays alive. He's the lucky goat, maybe. (laughs) And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions all their sins. It's probably a good thing they limit that to Aaron because I could imagine how people would start shouting out, oh, don't forget Billy's sin and oh, don't forget, you know, and Aaron's just going to keep, yes, Lord, we know you know everything we've done. We don't need to name names <laughs> or specific details, but Aaron takes care of that and he shall put them, the sins, on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. Now, hold your spot there at verse 22. He shall put the sins on the head of the goat. Yes, in one sense, because he's got his hands on the goat and he's confessing the sins upon the goat and the goat symbolically wears the sin as it goes out. But on another hand, uh, the, the, the rabbis have this tradition in which they make comments on the text. And part of their comments on this part of the Bible says that they would actually take a red cord and tie it around the head of the goat. So that the red representing their sin was literally on the head of the goat as the goat is then led out of the camp and into the wilderness, which is really cool because John 
the, the apostle John who wrote a gospel is a Jew, knows about the day of atonement. And he then talks about Jesus going to the cross and how the Romans put a crown of thorns, making what would look like a red rope around his head as he's wearing the sins of the people. And then Pilate says, take him away. Like they take the goat away from the camp. Jesus is led away outside the city. And so this goat and Jesus have something in common. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness, never to return. So the sins are on this goat, and the goat goes away from the camp. Brothers and sisters, that is good news for Israel. That is good news for you, that Jesus takes our sins on himself, and he takes them out and away. The goat doesn't come back to say, ha, let my uh, ghost haunt you. Your former sins are now going to follow you around in your dreams. And in every silent corner of your house, you're going to think about what a failure you are. And you're going to live in shame and hide that and carry that around and bury it so people don't know about you. And you're going to be angry because of it. And you're going to hurt people because of it. And you're going to live in fear of the future because of it. Um, nope, the goat doesn't come back. And neither should then the memories or the feeling of shame or a failure of I'm not good enough. God says, hey, this is start over, day of atonement. This is like a new year for you. It's clean slate. Don't let those things, if you let those things live with you, you haven't actually given them to the goat. If we let our past and our shame and our miseries live with us, then we haven't actually understood the cross of Christ. And so the goat goes out to Azazel, or meaning he's the scapegoat. He takes it entirely away. Step seven, the final, is the ram. There's two rams. Aaron has a ram. The people have a ram. These rams are the burnt offerings. You may remember from the beginning of Leviticus, the burnt offering is the one where the entire animal, everything is consumed by fire because it's a sign of we're giving all of ourselves to God. So thank you. You've taken our sins away. We're giving everything we have left to you. So verse 23, Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he had put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. See, these garments are for that specific purpose. Then he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments, so his normal uniform, and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering, so that's the bull and the other goat that was killed, it's going back and forth on us. He shall burn on the altar and he who uh, lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. So the sin offerings were not like the burnt offering. They were not entirely consumed on the altar. You had certain sections of the animal burned and then the blood poured in certain places in the tabernacle. Then you take the rest of the animal outside the camp and you burn it. That's what that's saying. 28. And he who burns him shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. Said very little about the rams, but they were there. They were burned. They were the burnt offering. Israel and Aaron saying, all right, we dedicate ourselves to you, O Lord. And then they do the cleanup stuff and everything is done. They've cleaned up. They're done. 
So 29, some commentary from God upon this day. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. You shall afflict yourselves. Basically, this means deny yourselves. The idea there is fasting. Now, the tenth day of the seventh month is autumn. The Jews went by a lunar calendar, so it doesn't always line up with our 12-month calendar, our solstice calendar. Um, But the seventh month would be in the autumn. The first day of the seventh month was their new year. They would blow ram's horns and announce a new year has come because they were following a year that followed the crop cycles. Ten days after that is this day of atonement. So we get to start the new year clean. The ten days in between new year and the day of atonement were known as the days of awe. The days of awe were when they for ten days prepared themselves for the day of atonement. Reflecting upon their past year. Confessing their sins. Thinking about what they've done and how they can live better. And fasting. And doing things to put their body in submission to the ways of God. And recommitting themselves to the ways of God. Those are the days of awe. Which for the record... The church for thousands of years has done something very similar with Lent and Easter. Easter being our day of atonement and Lent being that period is 40 days in which we prepare ourselves in that way. Now, because some people have, um, are very scared of the Catholic church, they don't like the word Lent and because it makes them think of that, but that's okay. Don't worry about it. What I'm showing you is the Bible says having a religious calendar is a good thing. Ordering our lives around a calendar that follows the life and redemption of God in his story is a good thing. And I bring this up because, believe it or not, Ash Wednesday, the day that we commemorate Jesus turning his face to go toward Jerusalem, the day that begins Lent, the 40 days before Easter, that's actually literally right around the corner. It's in, I think it's in two, one or two weeks from now. And so this is a time for us to think as we enter our days of awe, How are we going to live those days as we come up to the celebration of the cross and resurrection of Jesus? Are there things in our lives that maybe this is the chance to say, I'm going to give this up or things that we can improve our lives and say, this is the time I'm going to try this or or it's time to reflect on where have I been failing and how can I be strengthened? This is a good season to start getting ourselves in that path. Okay. And then verse 30, the key verse for on this day shall atonement oneness be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That's all you need to know about this day. Let me read that again. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins on this day. Now the prophets, you may remember, you may have noticed, always talk about on that day, right? There's some like nebulous day in the future. I love the vagueness on this day. You, you, in context, of course, it's the day of atonement. But you read that verse by itself on this day. What day? For us, we can say on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. Atonement, oneness shall be made between us and God. That part of us we've lost that severance, that tearing that we felt and we've carried pain for. So we've expressed it in fear and anger and shame and we've numbed ourselves from it and we've hurt others because of it and we've hidden things in our lives because of it. All of that is cleared through the scapegoat of Jesus Christ. It's put on him. He takes it away and he not only takes it outside the camp, 
outside of your camp, but he dies, which is perfect guaranteement that whatever died with him is not coming back because it's dead. It's not like, oh, is it going to wander? No, it died. But maybe it's going to come like on Halloween. No, 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 no. It died. The only Halloween thing where like the dead come to life was Easter and that was Jesus. That, that's, that's all that came back was a new body and a new risen Lord who says, told you I'm the king of the universe. And then we have this promise that he's coming back. That is what comes back on this day, on that day for us oneness is made. We have a scapegoat and we don't need to therefore unleash our pain on substances and people. So it is a Sabbath 31. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. You shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. So sandwiched around that key verse is this idea of deny yourselves something, live in fasting in preparation for this day. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So we've talked a little bit about Jesus here, but we would miss it if we didn't. Um, so atonement means at one minute because of this, this divide and this hurt and pain we feel in life because we have lost something with God. Atonement's about that, bringing it back together. Israel got to celebrate that on this day through this liturgy, through this ritual, through this seven-step process. Uh, we get to experience that every day because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is our high priest. He's our Aaron. Aaron went into the Holy of Holies. Jesus went into the real Holy of Holies, which the tabernacle was just a mirror image of. Jesus died, and so he was that goat and that bull. He died, and then he went to the Father. This is the real Holy of Holies. He's a better high priest. Hebrews talks all about this. You want to jot it down. Hebrews 9 and 10, chapters 9 and 10, Hebrews. It talks all about how Jesus does this for us. And he's a better priest. He's our high priest. But better yet is not just that he went to the Father, but he came back. See, it's one thing if Jesus goes and is buried and then never comes out of the grave. That would be like Aaron taking the blood of the bull and the goat and bringing it before God's throne, and then zap, he dies. And the people who are all outside are waiting. I mean, didn't last year take an hour and 15 minutes? We are at an hour and 17. I thought last year was a, I thought we were going to make a record this year. Billy, you owe me. You're wrong about the time. I know. Three hours go by. It's getting a little awkward. Do they bring out houses? I got to use the restroom. Uh, people are waiting, right? It's getting awkward. Maybe he's not coming back. And then finally someone looks, peeks in. <gasps> he died. Great. What do we do? No atonement that year. So what if Jesus is buried and then never comes out? So in the same way that Aaron comes out of the Holy of Holies and out to the people, we're forgiven for the year. And the people celebrate. Yes, he came back. <laughs> All was good. So when Jesus comes out of the grave, ta-da, we say, praise God. He accepted our forgiveness. 
Jesus is our priest. Jesus is also our goat. The one on whom, the sin, we've already said, the sins have been laid upon his head and he takes it away and dies so it doesn't come back. Jesus is also the veil. The veil that separated humans from God but was opened up on that one day. Jesus is that veil. The Hebrew says that he was broken in his body, which was the tearing of the veil. His flesh was the veil. As he was broken, the veil was broken. So there's now oneness between humans and God. Furthermore, we see in Matthew and Luke that when he dies on the cross, that the, ta- the, the veil in the temple was torn. Remember that? What does that mean? Well, on one hand, it could mean, yay, humans can now like go on into God's presence, but probably what it means is now the presence of God is no longer confined in a 15 cubit foot space in a certain place on the earth. It is now unleashed. And the presence of God and the throne of God is now everywhere his people are. So Jesus is our high priest. He's our goat. He's the veil. He's also the mercy seat. As Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat was with the, with the, it was the ark and it had the seat, the lid, the seat, the mercy seat with the two cherubim facing each other and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on it seven times. So when Mary goes into the tomb in John chapter 20 on Easter morning and looks into the place of the dead. She sees there where the body, the sacrifice, the blood sprinkled was once laid, Jesus's body. She sees in its place, not his body anymore. It's risen, it's walking around, but two angels sitting on that seat and say, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is a, she is seeing the holy of the throne of God right there. And the beautiful thing is that it's even in the places of the dead. God is invading every part of the universe. Even the places where death once ruled, he's invading. This is what our scapegoat means for us. So we're going to take communion tonight. Not yet. Don't get all like, sit, get ready to sit up. I got to close this still. <laughs> Man, I got to close it. <laughs> we will take communion in hopefully 10 minutes. Five or 10. Don't take bets. And we're going to thank him for being our atonement, that we have oneness with God. But I want to finish this with five, I didn't know what else to do, so I just said, you know what? Let's just put them together. Five observations from this passage I have for you. Five observations. Number one, intimacy with God is a journey. Intimacy with God is a journey. So why is there this holy of holies in which there's this process to enter and there's this veil and there's this whole like system of how do you get to God? Because sometimes we need to stop wearing t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homie. What I mean is not, if you have that shirt in your closet, you can, you can throw it away later. It's okay. But um, no, I'm not actually ragging on that. The point is that sometimes we kind of act like God is just like cool with whatever we do because he's just like super close with us. I'm super close with him. And we're like, no, 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 no. I mean, yes, God came down to us, but he's also asking us to become sons and daughters of God. And he's trying to bring us up to something. He came down to us to bring us up, not so that we can keep him chained down to our way of living. Um, so to have this intimacy, this holy of holies kind of relationship with God, it's a journey in which there are steps and hurdles and sacrifices. 
to be made on the way. And it's a growth. You don't just barge on into Loyola's. Native and Abayu learned that you don't do that. We grow into that through a series of prayers and reading scripture and serving others and obeying Christ one step at a time. The intimacy grows. It's a journey. Observation number two. There are no tagalongs into the presence of God. There are no tagalongs. In other words, Aaron didn't say, hey, you look like you need some help. Come with me, you sinner, and drags him on into the Holy of Holies. All right, you're good. Now you're cured. Yet sometimes we run church and Christianity like a drive through fast food, and we're like, you need help. Just get a little Jesus. Hear this sermon, and you'll be good. It doesn't really work. There's no tagalongs. There's no like, hey, just come with me, and you got it all figured out. No, no. Every person needs to decide to walk with God. Every person needs to decide that they're going to align their allegiance with what he considers valuable. Just by being with other people doesn't make you like them. Just by hanging out with your pastor doesn't make you somehow with God now. (laughs) Obviously, I'm talking about other pastors because you're nowhere near him with me. Probably not. Um, No tagalongs like Aaron. In verse 17 it said, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and all the assembly of Israel. Aaron had to do this on his own. We need to do this on our own. Now, footnote, I say on your own, I'm not saying every one of you are on a loner route with God. Don't talk to each other, or help each other. It's not what we're saying. We need each other in this journey. We need each other and help encourage each other and hold hands and pray with each other and support each other. We need that. In fact, we need to share our God stories with each other. But each individual must make the choice to live God's way. You don't just grab someone's coattails like someone else. The old joke, I don't know where it comes. I don't even know how it goes. But something about like, I don't even believe in God. When the rapture comes, I'll hold your foot and go up with you. Whatever. That's not how it works. <laughs> so third observation is that sin stains more than the sinner. Sin stains more than the sinner. There's this attitude today where Well, I don't really know why Christians call this a sin. It's only affecting me. That might be true. You might have this personal life in which you're making your own decisions, watching things on the internet or whatever. It's like only affecting you, right? Well, it doesn't matter that I'm sleeping with this person. That's our decision. It's not affecting anybody else. Um, So that means it's morally okay. Because the way we define morals in America today is... Once you hurt another person, that's when it's immoral. But as long as it's only affecting me, I can make my own morality. But what we see in Leviticus is that whatever the people did, the temple wears the scars of their sins. And the temple needs, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle, later of course the temple, the tabernacle needs atonement. Which reminds me of a brilliant piece of fiction by Oscar Wilde called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And this was a very controversial book when it came out in the late 19th century, um, but read by schools all around now. A young man, beautiful young man, is 
painted, his portrait's painted by an artist. And this young man, Dorian Gray, sees the picture that this artist painted and says, oh, if only I can remain this beautiful forever. And so he makes a deal to sell his soul so that he would remain as that picture looked forever. So what happens then is in the process of this portrait, he meets this guy named Lord Henry. Lord Henry is what we today call a hedonist, which means pleasure above all things. So Lord Henry believed in living for maximum pleasure. Forget morality and virtue. Just do what feels good. Well, as he lives this way of life with Lord Henry, Dorian does more and more sins and he hurts people along the way. And yet he doesn't age. Even as time goes on, he remains as beautiful as the portrait. But up in his attic where the portrait is, the image is getting uglier and uglier as he sins until it becomes a hideous monster. And at the end, I don't want to blow it. <laughs> but that is, <laughs> that is the idea, though, is that the tabernacle and Israel, it wears the marks of what Israel thinks is secret sin. And we need to consider that something, even though you may not, you may think you have it hidden from everybody else, and it may not be affecting anybody else. Every action we make impacts the soul on the trajectory of eternity. So over my 20 years, this little addiction may not be much to me over 20 years, but take that trajectory over eternity. What does that addiction look like? Monstrous exponentially worse. The concept we must think is every action affects impacts the soul. And though it might seem microscopic now, think about it for eternity. What will you become? The sin stains more than the sinner. Number four, observation number four, God is not angry. (laughs) Sometimes we come to passages like this and we see, okay, so they're bringing these animals because Israel sinned and God is really upset with their sin. So they go like, God, we're really sorry. Take our animal. Don't be angry at us. And God vents all of his anger upon the animal and says, okay, now I can hug you guys. I got my fit out on the animal. Not what's happening. Nowhere do we see an angry God in this chapter. Nowhere. We don't see these offerings as appeasement. Ah, be happy. No, we see these offerings as atonement. At one minute. Or put another way, Israel does not need to pacify an angry God. Israel needs to unify themselves from the God they ran away from. That's what the day of atonement is about. God is not angry with Israel. God is hurt that Israel is suffering through their separation and severance. And God is offering the opportunity like he did Adam in the Garden of Eden. Where are you? This is your chance to come into at one mint. And so you may know you're not in the best of places, but please never understand that God is angry at you. If you are hurt by sin or by your choices, God is right there weeping with you. He wants to lead us out of those decisions and out of that life. And when we look at Jesus on the cross, we often preach that he absorbed the wrath God has toward your sin in his son. But we need to see that Jesus is also showing us 
I love you so much that I was willing to follow you into death to claim you. That's why I'm on this cross. You wouldn't return to me, so I will go to the grave ahead of you so that when you get there, you remember you did love me this far. Fifth observation. We need a scapegoat. Everybody needs a scapegoat. Unfortunately, sometimes we choose the wrong scapegoat. And unfortunately, sometimes you are somebody else's scapegoat. Um, I've learned a lot about parenting, not just by having my own kids, but by talking to kids. And what I see happens is that parents who have a past, they feel the pain of separation from God and some of the things they did. They wear the pain They have that fear, they have that anger, they have that shame. And they want so badly to rescue their kids from their path that they go apocalyptic when the child reflects even microscopically any shadow of their former life. And it's well intended. The intent is love. They want to protect the child from what they had to suffer But the way they handle it is because there's this pain that is still unresolved. They haven't put their past on Jesus, their scapegoat, and let it go. They're still holding it. And so when the child steps into something, the child becomes a scapegoat. And then the child suffers, and the child's relationship with the parent suffers, and there's pain, and there's hardship, and the child ends up, well, not having a very good relationship with the parent. And what the parent was trying to avoid, the parent is actually imposing upon the child. This is all out of good intention. But because of their needing a scapegoat and choosing the wrong one, they're ruining things. We all need a scapegoat. We're either choosing our children, our parents, or Adam is choosing Eve or Eve the serpent, or you're choosing the person that abused you as a child. There is somewhere in your life, because of the lack of at one mint with God, we're holding some sort of pain, and we need a scapegoat to push it onto. And if we don't choose Jesus Christ on the cross, crucified for us to be our scapegoat, someone else will be the victim of your cross. So there is only one scapegoat. If Jesus is your scapegoat, we cannot push our pain and failure on the heads of others. Because if he is the scapegoat you choose, he is taking it to the grave, never to be seen. And you are now a new creature. The question we must stare in the face tonight and ask ourselves is who or what is my scapegoat? Am I trusting Jesus as that? Or have I been channeling it to the people around me? But the good news is 
is that if we have been treating others as our scapegoat, you don't have to anymore because we're going to take communion. And in the broken bread and the grape juice, representing the broken body of Jesus and the poured blood of Jesus, we are accepting the fact that he is our scapegoat. And you can channel all of your anger, all of your pain, all of your shame, all of your fear into his provision. And he says, I got it. I can handle this. Let's go forward living at one with God and those around us. Let's pray.